Episode 10, The Retrograde Approach, Management of Tibial Disease. Good evening and welcome to The Retrograde Approach. My name is Dr. Yigsan Sukumaran and tonight I've been joined by your friend, my friend and everyone's friend, Dr. Sam Farah. Good evening, Sam. Yogi, I think I used that line a few weeks ago. I don't know if you can recycle it and surely we're both not everyone's friend. Look, the way that I see it is you incorporate good practices from colleagues and and peers and um, Sam, it's, I think, uh, your vernacular in this circumstance is just exceptional <laughs> i'll take that as a compliment <laughs> uh sam before we get started uh, just uh, a quick thank you to dr tom lovelock who joined us on the podcast last week to share his recollection of the um surgical set interviews um both sam and i wish tom wish tom the very best of luck as he pursues his surgical career going forward um, and very grateful for the time that he put towards us last week. Yeah, it was a great episode. I think a lot of people got uh, a lot out of it and um, the feedback has been very positive. Fantastic. And tonight um, we're going to look at a topic that's close to your heart, the management of tibial disease. Yogi, I uh, remember the story you told about going to the vascular interview and Telling the interviewer you love fempop bypass as well, Yogi. I love tibial revascularization. And you're a loser. Thanks, Yogi. Thanks. <laughs> well, Sam, I guess in the um, in the year of patients that we look after, um, there is a just a growing proportion of patients who have quite significant tibial atherosclerotic disease. Um, and this is making our, our management strategies for this patient uh, that much more dynamic. And especially with the interplay of endovascular technology uh, within this management paradigm, uh, the options are broad. And tonight we'll look to cover both open and endovascular options for this difficult disease presentation. So, Yoki, again, for the uh, non-vascular surgeon, what would you define as tibial vessel disease? Yeah, so tibial vessel disease uh, describes um, disease of blood vessels below the knee um, and involves the three calf vessels um, that extend from the knee down into the foot and also um, the blood vessels that then subsequently form and extend into the foot itself as well. Excellent. And so, Sam, it's fairly fair to say that um, we've come a long way, even in a very short period of time, in terms of what is considered normal um, management practice for tibial disease. It's not that long ago, well, in the 90s, when you and I were doing, when we were both still in primary school. Who knows what? (laughs) Well, we were in primary school when... It was probably frowned upon uh, by our forefathers if we suggested uh, an endovascular first approach for tibial disease. However, 
technology has come so far since and that has allowed for a broader armamentarium when it comes to treating this very difficult disease presentation. Why, why do you think that is, Yogi? Why do you think people were at some point somewhat anti-endovascular for tibial vessel disease? I, I guess in the early days, the potential options for management were very primitive and the potential complications as a result of that would have been would have taken out potential open targets. Um, I think further further to that, surgeons by nature are probably born cynical. Um, and so without necessarily an evidence base or even some proven a- anecdotal or um, evidence, um, most would have felt reluctant to commit to uh, the heresy that is endovascular surgery at the time. Needless to say, I think Vascular surgery, particularly in this country, is, is allowed, has evolved with uh, endovascular technology. And as such, we've really had that fortunate of having that within our training program and we've evolved with it. Um, but I think really modern vascular surgeons really look at it as quite a important platform in their management plan for patients with tibial disease because of the extra armamentarium that it provides. Yeah, I think um, to some degree, you know, people were scared of the complications. So that comes to your point about uh, losing potentially um, or good open targets. The technology was relatively simple, you know, plain balloon angioplasty. And then you had something that uh, called the Basil study that came out that said if the patient was going to live longer than two years that they should potentially have um, open revascularization first and also kind of refuted this sort of free hit hypothesis, Yogi, where people sometimes say, okay, well, I'll have a go at trying to do this anterior tibial artery angioplasty, and if it doesn't work, then we'll just do a bypass. And there was some suggestion that that free hit hypothesis was in fact incorrect and that you kind of actually do make things worse or or potentially um, uh, make revascularization more difficult or the long-term results poorer. Yeah, that's right. And I think the uh, for those of you who are involved or participate within vascular surgery, it's not often it's often that you watch a surgeon dissect out a vessel and complain about how adherent it is to surrounding structures, or how difficult the dissection is, or how fragile the vessel is, or how injured the inner lining of the blood vessel is. Some of these, and potentially all of them, are a consequence of the potential intervention with an endovascular first technique and makes the subsequent open intervention that much harder. But that's not to say uh, we don't like doing open surgery, Yogi. Certainly, um, you know, uh, you and I both do tibial bypasses uh, not infrequently. There's certainly a role for them um, and some patients are better mm-hmm. suited to having open reconstruction. So, and, I, and again, I think that comes to the... Uh, you know, the advantage of being a vascular surgeon, you know, we do see both open and endovascular techniques. We use them both and we see advantages and disadvantages of each technique. That's right. And I think at the end of the day, it's about providing a, the holistic approach to the patient, taking into account both not only the patient characteristics, but also the anatomical characteristics of uh, the uh, lesion and pathology that's being treated. So, it's, sorry, Sam. So, I guess um, 
when it comes to indications for intervention on tibial disease, uh, what do you sort of think about and where do you, what sort of things would you intervene on um, to try and improve peripheral revascularization? I think there are some fairly strict indications. Um, those are obviously tissue loss and ulceration or what we're alluding to is limb-threatening chronic limb ischemia or CLTI or chronic limb-threatening ischemia. Those, or that would be my sort of um, strict indication for um, undergoing um, uh, tibial angiogram or, or angioplasties, I should say. I think, uh, again, rest pain, uh, particularly if it's supported by a low toe pressure, and I say low is in less than 40, again, is another indication to at least undergoing an angiogram with a view to intervene. I think uh, claudication is definitely a no-no. I wouldn't do any tibial intervention for claudication. And that's for two reasons. One, you know, the theory is the ciliar artery comes off the uh, popliteal artery. So really the uh, calf muscles are supplied uh, prior to the tibials. So you should really get no benefit from having tibial intervention for claudication. And uh, although technology has advanced, the reality is that the long-term patency uh, is not as good as a straightforward above knee fem pop bypass. So um, those are my general principles. And I, and I know you talked about endovascular indications there, but would an open open indications be similar, broadly speaking? Absolutely. Yep. Absolutely. Okay. And and I guess that that's fair because uh, you know open surgical interventions are associated with significant morbidity. Uh, even when compared to endovascular technology uh, and procedures. However, it's also fair to say that as we've become more comfortable with endovascular techniques, the potential morbidity associated with procedures that are prolonged and complex can be uh, as detrimental to the patient as an open procedure. Yeah, that's right. Uh, you know, sometimes a tibial uh, angiogram, angioplasty, or as... Uh, our uh, podcast name would suggest a, a retrograde approach can take a long time as well. So um, it's all about individual uh, individualizing the treatment plan for the patient. So um, as we know, patients have different, uh, their lesions have different complexities and not all tibial intervention takes as long. Sometimes it's quick, sometimes it takes longer. And similarly, sometimes a bypass may actually in fact be the faster option in some settings yeah and and sam we as we spoke about this at the top of the podcast um tibial disease is definitely becoming more prevalent and we're seeing it more commonly in in, in our patient cohorts that we look after and one reason for this is we are looking after probably the growing prevalence of diabetes in our community broadly speaking and uh, the typical disease presentation in this cohort of patients is distal disease and typically in the blood vessels below uh, below the knee uh, and also below the ankle into the foot. But similarly, um, there is, a, as a consequence of diabetes, is one contributor, but as a result of other potential causes of renal impairment, end-stage renal failure patients are also another cohort of patients that have significant tibial disease. 
And any combination of these together with just normal aging process and atherosclerosis makes the broad population group that then end up with uh, tibial interventions broader and larger. That's right, Yogi. Uh, I feel with time, slowly, these patients are becoming increasingly complex. Uh, their list of comorbidities extends. Um, and also just in terms of the diabetics and patients with end-stage renal disease, patients who've had previous transplants, usually renal transplants, tend to find that they also have fairly complex tibial artery disease that uh, is often quite difficult to revascularize. And they often have extremely calcified uh, tibial arteries. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a pretty sad state when we forlorn the fact that we can't deal the atherosclerotic pattern of a smoker and have to deal with the small <laughs> vessel disease of um, multi-complex renal failure or diabetic patients. It's, it is it is unfortunately a testament of where we are in society where um, public education programs have made a significant improvement in our understanding and the impact of smoke, smoking on health, but um, uh, we still struggle with um, more metabolic conditions and lifestyle conditions such as diabetes and the subsequent consequences of that. I think we could probably devote a whole podcast series on uh, poor lifestyle choices, Yogi, but um, uh, I think that's right. Um, you know, there's really two sort of patients or groups of patients when it comes to chronic limb-threatening ischemia. You've got the smokers who generally have disease situated above the knee and admittedly, these patients are generally nice to operate on, either doing a uh, endovascular technique or a fairly uh, straightforward bypass with quite often good conduit versus very distal tibial revascularization to a not great artery with a not great vein, which is in an obese patient is not very fun. Yeah, absolutely. So Sam, I guess a nice place to start is to think about the preoperative workup for these patients. And instead of, uh, I think we've spoken at length previously in terms of some of the considerations from an operative con uh, perspective, but purely from an imaging perspective, um, what imaging modalities do you look at when trying to plan your tibial intervention? I think just going back a step, Yogi, I think it's really important to look at the patient. Um, so just get an idea of, uh, first of all, um, their body habitus um, and then follow that up in the examination of their pulses so checking obviously femorals and popliteals as, uh, as we're talking about tibial vessel disease um, and uh, not uncommon pattern is to have both femoral and popliteal pulses present and then no uh, distal pulses I think in that case um, often people w would um, consider going straight to angiography which is not unreasonable, but I feel if there's any question about pulses, an ultrasound um, is um, a, a mandated, at least as a very minimum. And then my general approach, if I suspect common femoral and iliac slash inflow disease, I think a CTA is really quite, uh, quite useful. Uh, I think it characterizes common femoral disease better than an ultrasound uh, in some scenarios. And uh, a CT angiogram is also very useful for sizing uh, in terms of iliac stents. Yeah. So that's my general approach to imaging. And, and what's your general um, experience been with trying to comment on tibial vessels based off a CT angiogram? So, 
it's generally uh, gives you a rough idea, but more or less it's not very useful, particularly in these patients who can have um, fairly diffuse calcification. It's very hard to actually see what's uh, occurring in the tibial vasculature. So uh, in many sense, well, it, it quite often is not a very useful investigation. Ultrasound is uh, also... Um, can be compromised particularly by calcification as we know yogi um, so I think it's it's more useful in terms of planning your access so if you can ascertain that the common femoral and a reasonable length of the above knee pop uh, sorry um, the superficial femoral artery is patent to go downhill that's quite often all the information that you need yeah I, I think um, the, the ultrasound over the CTA is perhaps preferential, especially with the below knee vessels, is to give you an idea in regards to what the potential disease um, presentation may uh, may be. The difficulty with CTA is not only the interplay between contrast and the associated atherosclerotic disease, but the potential delay uh, associated with uh, concomitant issues with the patient and also timing related issues with contrast uh, that can result in a poor image uh, being defined. Um, and I guess it also reflects the importance of a good vascular sonographer uh, because uh, someone that's able to give you a, a good reflection of tibial disease with uh, ultrasonography uh, is absolutely amazing because of the ability to then plan with a non-invasive investigation. Yeah, I think that's a good point. You know, if uh, if the sonographer can at least obtain one or two acoustic windows and can demonstrate that downstream there's either monophasic waveform or TARDIS parvus waveform, that can actually give you useful information as to um, what's happening upstream. Yeah, look, I think every laboratory does it differently in terms of how they map out their tibial vessels um, and... I think from a very purely surgical perspective, absolutely right. I think some rep some reflection of their distal vessel will give you an idea of uh, the presence of an upstream problem. Um, what do you think of MRA before we move on? Yeah, look, it's not an imaging modality that I've used uh, routinely, for, especially for the assessment of the peripheral vasculature. Um, and, you know, it in the context of both time of flight and contrast enhanced MRA, uh, there are definitely um, ongoing developments in terms of its utility for peripheral atherosclerotic disease. The difficulty with MRA is, is its accessibility um, to patients, especially in the acute setting. And, um, and also from a physician point of view, it's also the comfort in being able to interpret what is put, in, put out in front of you from an MRA. So from a very personal perspective, it's not my frontline imaging modality of choice, but would consider it in patients who have a, a significant allergy to iodine-based contrast. Yeah, I think some centres are quite good at it, um, but a lot of centres don't have much experience with MR angiography, in which case um, if you put a request in, you might get a few question marks coming back at you so it's very center dependent some centers are good at it do it a lot and and in those centers actually mra is quite accurate yeah absolutely and i think you've just got to be seeing the volume to sort of be able to discern 
um, whether it is potentially undercalling the degree of disease um, below the knee. So, Yogi, a patient's come in with, um, we're going to say, limb-threatening ischemia, as in chronic limb-threatening ischemia, so they've got gangrene of second and third toes. Let's give you a history of, let's say, six months of ischemic rest pain, so pain in the foot at night that interferes with sleep, causing the patient to sit up out of bed and dangle their feet off the edge of the bed at night. Um They've been admitted under your bed card, as all these patients are. Long list of comorbidities. What are you going to do? Look, this is not an uncommon presentation in the broad scheme of things of our current population group. Um, My approach in this scenario is to begin by, after taking their formal history and examining the patient, will be to ascertain... um, some baseline imaging for the patient and typically my first modality would be a duplex ultrasound um, and if their renal function was adequate uh, a CT angiogram as that would help in terms of planning intervention and approach even if there's not great definition of the baloney vessels. Um, now interestingly the I have to check with you here Sam but the predominant feature here was just rest pain is that right Sam? Not a couple of black toes, so we're going to have oh, uh, some gangrene involved. As well. Going to throw some gangrene into the mix, Yogi. Sorry, sorry, I was just a really bad registrar that took half the yeah. story and came back and put back to you. <laughs> Does he have so, any tissue loss, Yogi? Uh, uh, let, I don't let me remember. check. Let me check. Let me oh, check. Yeah, no, his toes are black. Okay. Yep. Yeah. So there is some um, tissue loss. Yeah. Look. So in this situation the patient's facing quite a significant risk of limb loss. And um, my approach really, I'll be very honest with you, is that I still use the BASA trial to try and guide my determination in terms of how best to approach management. However, I take into account multiple factors. First and foremost, um, if I was considering an open first approach, I'd be thinking about where where my proximal anastomosis would be made and then subsequently the distal target and potentially the need to clarify that prior to embarking on that with a non-table angiogram. The, whether the patient had adequate conduit to allow for a bypass to occur, whether that's leg vein, arm vein or some composite of both. Um, the third thing I would also then consider would be uh, the patient's fitness for surgery and their ability to tolerate a prolonged general anesthetic for that and the consequences of subjecting them to lower limb revascularization from the reperfusion injury, but also from a prolonged anesthetic time, their impact on their cardiorespiratory reserve, uh, and also the also the associated issues with potential blood loss associated with that. Um, there, in part, would probably be the fundamental key things that I would look at from a purely open approach. From an, if I was considering an endovascular first approach, uh, my thoughts here would be to see whether it would be feasible to come downhill or from the same groin to try and target their vessels, whether there's any concomitant inflow problems, uh, whether that's above the level of the inguinal groin or inguinal crease rather or below. Um, the complexity of those lesions, whether it's stenotic or occlusive, the length of those lesions, 
and the subsequent outflow into the leg in terms of how successful that would be. Would that be a reasonably fair summary of the standard approach? I think so, but what what I really want to know is Yogi, how how who are you gonna who are you gonna treat endo, and then who are you gonna treat yeah. open? Yeah, and so I guess I still fall back to some certain degree on on the basil trial, um, and I would probably still look to provide an open first approach for those who have a life expectancy of greater than two years at that point in time. Needless to say, though, that's reasonably malleable on the basis of what available conduit I have and what the circumstance of the patient's presentation is because um, I would be behest to try and use synthetic material for a distal bypass and then furthermore in a patient who may have infective, uh, an infective presentation. So you're going to uh, vein map everyone before an angiogram? You know, in the ideal world, um, in the ideal world, I would have that information available. And, you know, at times in my training, I've definitely walked around with an ultrasound machine and mapped patients myself. Uh, I made lots of friends with sonographers um, and made lots of friends with nurses who felt um, potentially I was invading people's sleeping time. But um, I think it, it, the onus is on you as the surgeon to try and get as much information as you can to help guide management. Would, yeah. I, I, don't, I, I don't feel like that's unfair, but I think I, I, I genuinely think that um, in the ideal world, I probably would map everyone if I could. Yeah, okay. I may, uh, <laughs> Sam may not agree with that. I d- <laughs> I think generally um, patients with CLTI or gangrene rest pain, uh, I sort of painted a pretty bleak picture of this patient yogi, but I I think I sort of look at it a few ways. First of all, all these patients will get an angiogram no matter what, right? So whether it's you're going to do open, whether you're going to do endo only, no one's going to do a bypass without a – or a tibial bypass at least without an angiogram. Some people would. I wouldn't do it. Um, I don't know about you, Yogi, but I think at least a diagnostic angiogram before a bypass is what most people would do. Would you first of all agree with that statement? Yeah, look, I think I think that's I think that's fair. I think you don't, you don't really want to embark on some major in, uh, undertaking only to find that um, your distal flow is not going to lead you anywhere. Yeah, yeah. So I think first of all, almost everyone's going to get an angiogram before a bypass. I think if the disease is isolated to tibial vessels, I think that then I would almost always try and revascularize endovascularly first unless there was some you know, major reason why I shouldn't. Maybe if it was an especially young patient, but, you know, what's young anymore? I think, um, you know, if the patient's less than 60, I would think about it, but otherwise I think endo first is really now the sort of standard of care. I think the problem with the basal trial, it's it's really the, the, the technology has really outpaced the study by so by so much now that it's very difficult to know whether it's still applicable. Obviously, you know, uh, what Basel II, best CLI, these are about to come out. Perhaps we'll 
reshape our thinking a little bit. But I think, first of all, endo first for most of these patients as a general rule. The other thing I was going to say, Yogi, is with the angiogram, I was sort of looking at lesion complexity. So if things are situated, uh, if the disease is located in the tibial vessels only, then I think, yes, endo first. If it then starts to involve trifurcation and then popliteal, now we're talking sort of more complex lesions where I think actually uh, this is a more difficult endovascular re- uh, revascularization that may take one to two hours. That's the sort of patient that I would then be thinking, should I be doing a bypass here instead? Sure. But at the same time, though, they've got to have available conduit for you to embark on that. And often that's the rate limiting step. So yeah. I, t- I take the point of view that having that information from the get-go allows you to drive that better. Yeah. The other thing to say is most of the patients who I would do a tibial bypass on have actually failed endo first. Um, so uh, there are very few patients in my practice who go on to have a tibial bypass without having at least an attempt at endovascular revascularization. So I'll ask you sort of the kind of inverse of that question, Yogi. Would there be, is anyone that you would do a bypass on without trying to um, recanalize or revascularize um, endo first? So is there anyone you would go straight to a bypass on? Yeah, look, I think, um, so I think, the age of the patient, the availability of conduit are important considerations, but I, I agree with you that um, lesion complexity and particularly um, the inclusion of popliteal artery lesions, which add extra degrees of complexity in the era of the no stent zone or um, especially with small caliber popliteal arteries, uh, we know anecdotally that their long-term patencies aren't great. So in a younger patient with available conduit with complex disease presentation, like you mentioned, uh, and also disease length, um, it's probably preferable that an open first approach is considered in the in the in the appropriate patient. However, um, as you know, Sam, often the patient the, the patients that we are looking after are um, in the elder elderly population group. Um, though, like you said, what is young and what is old these days, as I was recently listening to a, a presentation on chest wall trauma fragility where the geriatric age group was anyone over the age of 45, Sam. So not far. <laughs> it's very concerning to me, Yogi. So, uh, Yogi, considering that now I know you're such a fan of open tibial bypasses, what are your sort of general principles when you do an open tibial uh, bypass? Yeah, look, Sam, I think um, I try and be consistent with this. Um, so ensuring that the patient has adequate conduit from the get-go and determining what I'm willing to accept is adequate. So whether they're in a situation where they have ipsilateral vein or whether I'm happy to harvest their contralateral GC, especially if they've got some minor disease on the contralateral side or also whether I'd be happy to harvest uh, arm vein um, uh, for a bypass, uh, some of my initial considerations. Um, once the patient's on the table, um, I typically do like to perform a diagnostic angiogram uh, to help guide uh, the distal target. Hopefully, 
sometimes this is done preoperatively, but occasionally it can be done on the day of the procedure as well. And if that was the case, I'd come from the contralateral groin to try and avoid traumatizing the ipsilateral groin if I need that for the proximal inflow. Um, and that would help sort of shape which of the do, uh, tibial vessels I could uh, aim to anastomose onto to try and achieve the best long-term result. Um, I always expose the distal target first as a, a means of principle. Um, I've definitely been in circumstances where that's not happened and it's led to a whole, a whole world of pain. Uh, being unable to proceed with an intervention or realizing that there's not great longevity with the operation that's been subsequently performed. How do you know your distal target is patent, Yogi? Well, first and foremost, the angiogram um, allows you to define uh, at least a segment of vessel which you can aim for and target. Yep. Um, there are both invasive and I guess non-invasive ways of looking at this. Um, you can expose the vessel and use a handheld Doppler to confirm that you've got uh, a Doppler signal in the vessel once it's exposed. Uh, but perhaps the more conventional way to do this would be to provide, uh, administer some heparin, clamp the vessel and just open it and demonstrate back bleeding from the vessel to demonstrate that the vessel is patent. Um, and then on completion of your bypass, do a completion angiogram to again demonstrate that there's flow beyond into the distal in in the in sort of your um, runoff vessels as well. Another way, Yogi, uh, you can do it is if you uh, feel that the vessel's patent and you feel it, and it's like okay, that feels like a good vessel or so too. Uh, if you stab it with a 25 gauge, very fine 25 gauge needle, and demonstrate that there's actually back bleeding, then that's a sort of somewhat atraumatic way to demonstrate that the vessel at that point is at least patent, which may be useful if you're particularly short on conduit. And, uh, I guess the, yeah, I guess the most difficult bit of that though, is you don't really know which you'd have to, do you clamp as you do that, Sam, to just, no, you just that anti-grade no, or retrograde? No, you just go, you just stab it with the, uh, with the needle. And then if it's patent, it generally will bleed from the little, the little hole you've made. Not significantly, considering the inflow is uh, is diseased. Yes, uh, I do believe if you stick a needle into a blood vessel, it will bleed. But Sam, <laughs> do you know? <laughs> do you know whether the blood is coming in an anterograde or retrograde fashion? You don't. That's right. <laughs> Doesn't make a difference. <laughs> That's right. It, well, you could. Yeah. Anyway, that that would be the point I would make. That the I guess that's the difficulty with that. Um, but uh, I do thank Sam for explaining to me the, the fact that you get blood when you poke it with a needle. Um, <laughs> uh, I, I, most of the time when you're tunneling to a distal target, you end up in a subfascial plane. But it's, it's important that as you tunnel the graft, you pay particular um, care to ensure that the fascia doesn't constrict the graft um, and that your uh, mindful that that it still has ongoing um, anti-grade flow. Um, that uh, that raises a good point because I know Sam, your preference when you're doing a tibial bypass is to use an Eschmark tourniquet, where whereas I like to use little bulldogs because I think um, I'm just not as skilled using an Eschmark as yourself. 
Yeah, the Esmark is a nice way to do it. You sort of save yourself some dissection because you don't need to make room for the bulldog clamps. And also, um, the clamps can sometimes be traumatic. Depends on what clamps you have available to you, Yogi. Maybe at the PA, you've got somewhat nicer bulldogs to where I work, but um, not all bulldogs are created equal. So, the um, the uh, that damaging the tibial artery has always been a concern of mine. Um, the other consideration is, of course, you know, what the patient's got more proximally. So if you're going to use a tourniquet, you need to be quite mindful of uh, whether there are stents um, stents in the leg and whether, you know, crushing them is going to be a factor. So if you're doing a, you know, pop AT bypass and there's an SFA stent, well, in that situation, I wouldn't use the uh, tourniquet. Yeah, fair enough. And I think it is really a... a, a uh, a bespoke method of achieving hemostasis. Bespoke. <laughs> Only those who uh, have the uh, the dark arts of vascular surgery really are keen to sort of give that a go. Um, now, Sam, I guess we're moving on to more intervascular considerations. Um, what sort of, what sort of uh, pre and then interoperative considerations do you take into account when you're approaching an endovascular? Um, management for a, for a tibial presentation? Um, so the main uh, preoperative consideration is um, uh, obviously we're considering why we're doing the procedure, but we're going to presume that we've got a fairly solid indication here, as always, Yogi. It's the same patient. They've got um, rest pain and they've got some necrotic toes. The registrations didn't tell you about the necrotic toes. So, so the first thing I'm I'm really thinking about is am I going to go, am I going to go uh, up and over or am I going to go downhill? Now I know in some centres, particularly some major centres overseas, they do basically everything up and over, even very distal tibial work. But but in my experience, um, I almost always prefer to go downhill if possible. I think um, you've got more chance of crossing a more complex lesion downhill. Um, the wires are shorter, so the handling is a bit easier. Uh, but yeah, obviously that first consideration is is um, anti-grade or retrograde access. Um, a lot of these patients uh, may not have common femoral disease, but that's always a consideration when you're also puncturing. So always looking very carefully on ultrasound to see what the uh, access vessels are like. My other uh, preoperative considerations are the patient's fitness for surgery. So is this someone who can't have a general anesthetic or major open revascularization? And I'm basically saying, okay, I'm going to try as hard as I can here to get something going because this patient's only really suitable for endovascular. I think that's actually quite important. Um, knowing is this your only option prior to an amputation or palliation or um, if this doesn't work, do you have a plan B? Um, and that may actually just be a bypass. Um, I generally do these under local anesthetic with some sedation. Some patients will need a GA, particularly if they may have, you know, back problems, can't lie flat for long periods of time. That's always a consideration as some of these procedures can take one, two, sometimes unfortunately even three hours. Could and I then, quickly present a very yep. controversial opinion there, Sam? Mm. Um, it is fair to say that endovascular procedures 
were really sold initially as being a means of avoidance of a general anesthetic and the ability to perform them under local sedation. But you and I both know that there is nothing more distracting and nothing that's going to prolong the procedure than a patient that's moving under local sedation. And often it's better that they have a GA so it reduces the potential procedure time from that perspective. Do you foresee that in the future, whilst we initially thought that endovascular technology was all about the reduction of the need for a general anaesthetic, that this may in fact go in the opposite direction? Yeah, that's a good point. I think that's certainly true. There are some patients who just can't tolerate local for whatever reasons. Um, you know, sometimes I feel that some, some patients are very sensitive to infiltrate with local very sensitive to put a sheath in that just seem to have more um, sensitive blood vessels than other people. So yeah, I do think that that is a that is a reality that some patients just can't tolerate the procedure even under local anesthetic. And that may also be due to the fact that the patient has severe rest pain. And so you've got them lying flat for two, three hours and their foot hurts and they need to get up. So mm. um, yeah, I think um, unfortunately, you know, it, it's not the... Uh, magic fix in terms of avoiding GAs altogether, as we thought. So, Sam, um, you've talked about coming up and over. You've talked about um, going downhill. But uh, what about your favourite pastime um, coming retrograde? Um, is does that bring you joy uh, when that that when that's on gonna, the table? Am I going to have to edit that 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 bit out, Yogi? <laughs> Um, yeah, so I mean, your access is a, certainly a consideration. Um, uh, so you know, we do uh, retrograde access, not in not infrequently. Um, but first of all, the patient who's had a retrograde uh, puncture, typically, um, probably m- almost all of them that I do are DP punctures. Um, they tend to be someone who has failed uh, anterograde access. Um, and generally when I bring the patient back for a retrograde puncture, I'll have one more go, go anterograde. And, you know, it's surprising um, how often you actually might have success going anterograde a second time. Um, now, you know, we just spoke about GA versus local anesthetic. Uh, retrograde access is, you know, you really should be thinking about whether or not the patient should have a GA. It can be done under local, but... Um, it becomes certainly more difficult. All these patients may have pretty significant neuropathy in the foot and can tolerate the puncture in the local. But it's also now that you're doing that, you're probably going to increase the procedure time um, um, not insignificantly. Yeah, which is where the difficulty with embarking on something like this under local sedation just becomes even more difficult. Yeah. So, Yogi... Long tibial lesion, anterior tibial is occluded, trifurcation is patent. What's your setup? How do you do it? Yeah, so one, so I typically would approach a tibial lesion with a downhill or anterograde approach um, and I begin usually with a short sheath um, and my access sheath typically for an angiogram is a five French sheath. Uh, so from the groin, I would take a series of sequential pictures um, just with hand runs um, and complete um, a complete diagnostic angiogram 
from groin to lateral foot. If I'm satisfied that there's no femoral popliteal disease, I will then um, use a, a, a an angle catheter of choice, and my angle catheter is usually a um, it's a burn catheter with a soft glide wire, and position that um, within the distal SFA or P1 segment of the popliteal artery, exchange for a stiff wire, and then uh, upsize to a long. Um, sheath and typically I place a six French sheath in this position. It provides a stable platform and provides um, in my hands the ability to approach a tibial lesion with better torque and pushability and hopefully improve my uh, platform stability. I think the other advantage of having a long six French sheath is Yogi, you know, you're doing work below the knee You've got your catheters, balloons through the sheath. You can easily do runs that opacify the tibial vessels quite quite easily. Yeah, that's right. So you can you can do two sets of runs really. You can you can augment that experience with a catheter and do runs through the catheter. But occasionally um, you also want to try and find your distal target. So having a sheath that's a lot larger than your catheter means that you can shoot around it, so you can fill your distal target even though your catheter is somewhere in the Mediterranean trying to get back into um, an appropriate country. All right, that's good. I, I have my, my setup's a little bit different. I, uh, I do use a long six French sheath um, that, uh, that I, I do share with you, Yogi. But uh, in terms of wires, I generally prefer an 018 wire. So 018 uh, command or V18 is generally my workhorse. Oh, I, I do. I do apologize, Sam. I, I wouldn't go. I wouldn't go hunting the tibials with an O three five. Why? I never. I wouldn't suggest. I wouldn't suggest that. Yeah, I wouldn't suggest that. I I do. I do downsize my platform once I've got my. Um, I do. Yeah, I do downsize once I've got a stable platform, and uh, I there are, there is more that I share in life with you, Sam, than uh, than just the sheet that I'd use for a tibial. I definitely would use a. A small caliber wire to go hunting a tibial. And then, uh, what what catheter would you use? Let's say long long AT lesion. What are you generally yeah. using? Yeah, yes. So I I use I would use a uh, an O one four wire, and typically also I would start off with a um, an O one eight caliber CXI catheter is usually what I would use, an angled catheter. And then downsize that even to a smaller 014 caliber CXI if I had to. Um, as I chase it, I technically I use a sort of chase technique with the catheter. So use my wire, talking the wire through a lesion and following it with a catheter all the way down to try and um, maintain the integrity of the tip of the wire. Yeah. So I, so you sort of have the wire just poking out the catheter a little a little bit. And you push them down both together. Is that what you're suggesting, Yee? Yeah, correct. So um, allowing the wire to just take the course um, uh, without sort of trying to instrument too much with the catheter, but using the catheter to do some focal small volume bolus runs to confirm that I'm still intraluminal, uh, especially once I've achieved crossing the lesion distally. Yeah. Uh, my only... Um a fairly similar setup. The only thing I do slightly different is I, will, I put the CXI catheter through uh, an 035 Navicross or the 4 French Navicross and then I would 
parked that more proximally perhaps in the proximal AT if it was patent because I, f- I find that the Navicross is generally uh, fairly atraumatic and then I put the CXI through the Navicross and I think that just gives me a bit more um, stability and a bit more pushability particularly if the lesion's particularly um, calcified and yeah that's um that's some pretty high level um experience right there i think sam sam is the tibial hunter <laughs> maybe we can make some merchandise yogi we can have a we can have a hat that says tibial hunter uh that's, that's good. pretty good i just i just came up with that as we were as i was looking through uh our show notes here what what um what i could add to this this segment of the discussion now the um the other part is also the adjunctive pharmace- pharmaceuticals that we use also utilize with um peripheral angiography and i'm a i'm a big believer in ensuring that patients are adequately heparinized and um, especially for long procedures ensuring that acts are checked and heparin doses are up titrated as required but also um I pretty I'm pretty aggressive with my use of GTN as well, um, especially to try and mitigate the the potential risk of vessel spasm associated with putting wires and catheters down. Yeah, I uh, I uh, never give anything less than five thousand units of heparin. I think if you're going to do a tibial, the thrombotic problems are far more difficult to manage than the uh, bleeding problems. GTN, uh, that's an interesting one, Yogi. I have given it from time to time, but uh, I do a lot of tibial work. I actually rarely give GTN. Um, Yeah, I don't know. I just don't – I think in our patient population, a lot of them actually have calcified vessels that sometimes don't spasm all that much, but certainly we do get it. But, uh, yeah, in my day-to-day practice, I try and avoid giving GTN if possible. Okay. I, I, I've got to say I'm, I'm fairly cautious, um, but I will clarify with uh, with my anaesthetist before administering a dose uh, of GTN. But I think um, that or, or aggressive flushing with heparinized um, saline is another strategy that I find very helpful. Yeah, so uh, I generally, while uh, the balloon is up, I, I generally just spend the two minutes flushing the sheath. Mm. Yeah, fair. And then in terms of sizes, say you've crossed the lesion um, and you want to now balloon angioplasty, uh, a lesion that you've crossed, um, what sort of size balloon are you looking at um, for a tibial vessel um, normally, Sam? Generally between uh, two and three millimetres. Yeah, I, I... yeah, that's that's fair, and I think often you sort of make a size determination based on the angiographic run itself, and sometimes the vessel is smaller than anticipated. But um, I, I would be the same, sort of two and a half to three mil balloons. Do you do anything differently with the inflation times at all, Sam, for tibial vessels? No, I'm generally, generally doing the two minutes again. I don't okay. Get, uh, yeah. Do you do three or no change? No, look, I I don't. I I'm a I'm a usually somewhere between one and a half and two minutes. I know I've definitely worked with people who go to sub-nominal but hold for longer as a sort of slight difference in practice. But um, uh, I, I think for me, um, I, I don't do anything grossly different with the tibials. Now, uh, Yogi, uh, need to ask you about two things. One, tibial scenting. What, th- what are your thoughts? 
look, in the context of uh, CLTI, um, I think it's not unreasonable to um, throw the throw the kitchen sink at a foot to try and keep the foot. So, if this is if the patient, from my perspective, a patient with CLTI, like you mentioned before, has a reasonably poor prognosis, so well worth giving it all you've got to ensure that the foot is salvageable. And so from that perspective, I think um, uh, I would consider it. However, um, tibial stenting is not without um, its <laughs> it is, it's fickle business. And often um, whilst the initial runs look great, uh, there's nothing worse than having put in a few tibial stents to realize they either occlude on the table or um, have, have then taken out a potential option for revascularization in the future. So I, I do stent with caution. Yeah, I think that's fair enough. I think most people would as well. Um, I think the tibial stents, are, I, if I ever put, like quite often I will put them in the, uh, if it's particularly treating an anterior tibial lesion that, a anterior tubule origin particularly gets sort of uh, fairly dense calcific disease. And after angioplasty, that's the area or the region of the artery that looks particularly um, unsatisfying. And I think in terms of all the places where I put tubule stents, that's generally where I get the best results at AT origin. Really stenting that open really um, quite often does provide good flow to the foot if the rest of the AT is patent. Um, I tend to have less satisfying results if I'm putting them into more distal vessels to try and tack open a, you know, dissection flap or something. I, I tend to find that those results are less satisfying. Um, so as a rule, I, I tend to find the stents better for kind of opening the top up and letting everything else flow down below. But to try and to place in in the middle of a AT or a PT or a perineal, I, I, the results. Um, in my mind don't tend to be as good but yeah i do recognize obviously that uh, tibial stents do have a role yeah and i think um especially like you said with distal targets um there's nothing more dissatisfying than um doing your completion run and whilst you've got an open vessel there's size mismatch or spasm and there's uncertainty as to whether the stent will remain open as you sort of take the patient off the table yeah tibial atherectomy yeah look I, I hand on heart cannot tell you that I've done one before um, so I know that it's a feasible option it's just not something that I have a lot of experience with and um, but you know as as we evolve through uh, the current age of endovascular technology I suspect that this is going to play a bigger role um, atherectomy came back in a big way in more recent times, especially with the uh, concerns with drug-eluting technology, which seems to have completely now dissipated in the current environment that we're in. However, um, I think atherectomy overall has a role going forward, Sam. And I'm not sure what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, well, long story short, I haven't done a tibial atherectomy yet, but I do find the uh, the idea quite intriguing. I think... You know, there are certain patients who I can imagine would benefit from it. Basically, you know, small, you know, tibial arteries full of calcium. You know, I can see that 
from a logical point of view that that would potentially be beneficial. Uh, but I guess I'll just have to wait and see until I um, give it a try, Yogi. Yeah, look, um, maybe you can let me know when you do it and I'll come down and watch you <laughs> go hunting these tibials. Tibial hunter. All right. I think the last thing maybe we should just talk about, Yogi, is uh, doing a retrograde doing a retrograde approach or, or a DP puncture. Yeah. You do these at least once a week as, uh, as I've come to understand. Uh, I can tell you that uh, it's been a very long time since I've done any form of retrograde puncture. Um, I do try and aggressively go from an antegrade approach if I can. Yep. Um, if I had to do a retrograde uh, puncture, I would do this uh, using an ultrasound and typically a hockey stick if I had one available. Um, but otherwise, I'd be happy doing it using just a linear array um, probe. Um Saying that, though, I've also seen um, some of my um, mentors use fluoroscopy as a means of trying to localize the vessel yep. to do their puncture. Um, I think at the end of the day, you've just got to pick a technique that works for you and that one that you can hopefully replicate reasonably consistently. Um, and so um, like anything in surgery, pick what is going to give you the best success with and stick to it because uh, you're going to be able to replicate that uh, when you need to. Yeah, I think the hockey stick is a uh, good piece of advice. When I'm doing a retrograde puncture, the thing that's always difficult is putting the horizontal probe on a curved foot. Um, Generally, the bit that's actually straight is a bit higher up the foot and you're puncturing higher than you actually want to. Um, Do you use a... uh, I generally... Use a pedal access kit if available, Yogi, or just a normal micropuncture kit. Yeah, so I, I would use just a micropuncture needle and um, typically then follow with a um, CXI and an 0140 and an 8 wire rather than putting in a sheath per se. Yeah, I also don't like putting in a sheath. I think, uh, you know, there are people who put in four French sheaths and do everything that way. I think even the four French. Um, Sheath, the outer diameter is bigger than the micropuncture, so it feels a bit big to me. I Yeah, I, I leave the micropuncture sheath in. You can always put a, a valve on the end of it and then use that as your sheath, and then I would put a CXI and an 018 wire uh, retrograde that way, and I find that it's usually a fairly good platform, and then either snare from the top or uh, cannulate your sheath or uh, your catheter. Yeah. Look, I think um, I think that's valuable advice, and I think keeping your access um, arteriotomy small, especially with a distal vessel, probably is the smart idea. Well, Sam, look, I think that's uh, been a reasonably comprehensive discussion of um, the management of tibial disease. This is an uh, this is a topic that we could spend a lot more time breaking down the nuances of it. Um, however. Um, I think tonight we were aiming really to cover some of the broad strokes for both open and vascular management and hopefully those of you listening with us tonight um, get something out of why we pick a particular approach and particularly uh, some of the challenges that we try and look to manage before bringing the patient into the operating theatre itself. I think we could talk all day about this, Yogi. (laughs) Yeah, look, and I think there's probably more to say and with time um, and into the future, there's probably be new revolutions in in um, 
the management of tibial disease and I only anticipate that this topic will continue to grow going forward. All right, Yogi. I think we'll wrap up there and uh, see you next week. Thanks, Sam, and uh, thanks, everyone, and uh, until next time. For more information, please visit us at vascular.fm or on Twitter at vascularfm. And we're also on Instagram at The Retrograde Approach. See ya.